The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Hi, I'm Daniel Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome to This is Working. On this show, we talk to leaders who have had a significant impact on society and on the way we live and work now. Today, my guest is Albert Borla, the CEO of Pfizer. COVID-19 took over the world in the past 16 months, causing death and disruption in country after country. And it's still doing that today. But there's hope because of the rapid development of COVID-19 vaccines. Last November, Pfizer was the first to announce that it successfully created the vaccine, doing so in partnership with BioNTech. There was no guarantee that a vaccine could be developed or developed in a short enough period of time to save lives and economies. But Albert Borla believed. He's an unconventional CEO with a very unconventional rise to the top. As will tell us more in this episode, he's a trained veterinarian with a PhD in biotech, and he began his career at Pfizer's animal health division over 28 years ago. After jumping from department to department, he became CEO in 2019. And just months into his tenure, he had to tackle one of the world's biggest crises. Here's our conversation. It is great to have you here. If we had brought you in last year at this time, I think you guys would have been at the point where you had narrowed down the potential for a vaccine to two different candidates, but there were incredible amount of questions still to try to figure out and problems to solve. Now you've shipped over 450 million doses to over 90 countries around the world. I would love to just get a sense from you on how you're feeling when you look back at this last year, how does it make you feel? I feel blessed because, as you said, we had to make uh, so many decisions and we made mistakes, but we were lucky or blessed to get most of them right, and particularly the critical ones all right. And one of them is what you were just saying, that uh, we had two candidates in the clinic, and by the time, which was approximately this period of time, if I remember well, we had to select one of them. And 80% of our data were for the first one, and uh, only 20% of the total data that we have was on the second one. And the first one, we knew that it is a very good one. But the second one, we didn't know a lot of things, but it could have been better than the first one. And uh, we've chosen the second one to go into the clinic. So imagine if we were making the opposite decision, or if we were making the intuitive decision, that was very counterintuitive. I would so, love to get into how you made those decisions. The lessons learned from this last year for you extend well beyond pharmaceutical. This is something that I think if you're doing any kind of business, understanding how to make decisions with limited data or when to go with intuition versus when to go with what data you have. I mean, th those are questions that people wrestle with all the time. Definitely not the same scale and not with the same life and death implications that you were dealing with. We actually have a clip that I, I want to show you with from, from a documentary that you recorded with uh, National Geographic that showed, I believe this is the exact moment when you found out that that second vaccine had worked, that this was going to be the one you were going to go with. Good news. We made it. We had a successful vaccine. The efficacy was more than 90%. Oh, my God. <laughs> Would you walk through what was going on in that moment? Did you know this was going to happen or was that a total surprise to you? 
No, it was total surprise. Actually, this was happening in the same building that we are I'm right now. And uh, the, the gentleman who was wearing a mask and he said, oh my God, is the head of our R&D. For some legal reasons, I had to find out the, the final data together with our uh, lawyer so that we can assess uh, uh, who else uh, needs to know those data. And this is the, the time that I told him. He knew that we were successful. He didn't know that we are 95% at the time. I had asked him before, give me your bet. And he had told me more than 70%. And he didn't believe 95%. And what did you think? Were you pretty sure it was going to turn out that way? No, I did. Actually, I was trying to empty my mind from projections because otherwise I could uh, get, uh, could, that could get you crazy. What I believed was that based on everything I had seen, that we have the best chances to get it right. I mean, us and Moderna with the mRNA vaccines. And what uh, I was thinking is that if we don't, if we don't succeed, we have bigger problems than us failing on that. The world will be in, in a mess. So I, I, I realized the, the weight of the moment on my shoulders. And thank God came not only positive, but came way beyond expectations at 95, a game changer. So it must have felt like you could suddenly breathe again after having been holding your breath for months. I felt like that in the evening. In that moment, it was a, a, a moment from explosive uh, joy. But uh, pretty soon we moved into a mode of what's next. So how to let the world know. I mean, keep in mind that this was likely the most material information that one could have in the world at that time that there is a vaccine for a disease that everybody is dying and uh, there is 95% uh, effectiveness. So a series of things start uh, going into my mind, including discussions with legal teams, with corporate, with communications. With So all of that were sorted in the next, let's say, five hours. We wanted to be immediately out uh, with the numbers, given the materiality that they had in the world. And then in the evening, I went home I called my son from the family. Uh, after I asked my lawyer, can I tell my son? And he said, okay, tell him. And then I told him, so they knew. So I went back home and uh, a big glass of wine cold was waiting for me. That's phenomenal. I would love for you to walk us through that eight-month moonshot. When you knew this was something that you were going to have to focus on, when you said this was a time for Pfizer to, we have a chance here to save the world, what did you do to start getting your company into battle mode, into this kind of single focused idea that this is something that you're going to have to accomplish whilst there are being so many questions? And then how did you maintain that kind of energy o over time? In every case like that, when you're trying to do something that uh, is uh, seemingly impossible, the number one thing it is to make people believe that it can be done. And uh, without that, there's no way that you will be successful. And I think the toughest thing in the beginning, to get them to, to, to believe. What helped me a lot was that the cause of what, for what we were working was so noble, that uh, the price at stake was so high that uh, everybody immediately devoted themselves. The thing that I told them is, look, if not us, then who, guys? And just imagine your world your family, your kids, your neighborhood, your community, uh, without a vaccine in October, in this fall. Uh, will be a disaster. And if you think someone else can do it, please let me know. But I think we are the ones. 
And that helped a lot because everybody really believed that uh, there is the option of failure is not an option. That helped a lot. But then during the process, there were a lot of things that had to, to be in place because ingenuity was a key ingredient of what was happening of all the scientists and the people. Self-sacrifice and dedication was another key ingredient of all of that. But also a process that uh, was uh, making decisions very, very fast is what I think also helped us to, to come to that level. So we organized a big team with the absolutely necessary people, but all the necessary people. And we had multidisciplinary teams, so different silos or different functions of a company would be all together there and different layer of management. So it was not going to be me and my report because then, you know, the minus four will agree with them to preserve to the minus three and then the boss will change the, the presentation and then send it to present to minus two that they will send until they come to me. And this experiment that we were working like one team, multiple layers of management and multiple disciplines all together with someone who had the authority to make decisions, I think was the critical ingredient to, to come to this point. So I have two questions for you on that. Number one is you talked about the importance of everyone believing. Did you believe from the very beginning? Did you know that this was something you were going to be able to do? I, I believe uh, as the others that there's no absolute failure. So I was behaving and acting like if we are successful. We didn't take measures to de-risk the project. We didn't take measures to, to slow down so that we can increase the probability of success. The goal was won by October, we need to have it. And all hands on deck. And so I behaved exactly like if we were having a successful vaccine. I, I built capacity of, uh, to produce eventually billions, which I knew that we'll have to not use if we were unsuccessful. But we did it. So in this meeting, you had manufacturing, you had R&D, you had government relations. It is one thing to say we're going to have a big company-wide meeting to go about to go over this instead of having my direct reports. It's another thing to actually run that meeting, to run it successfully, to have everyone feel like the right voices are coming in. This is Project Lightspeed, I assume. Is that the name of the, of the project? We named it Lightspeed. Actually, I didn't like the fact that eventually the word word speed came. And <laughs> I was thinking... <laughs> That's a little bit fantasy, the word speed, but it was called light speed. And what helped was, again, the power of digital, because all these meetings were digital, right? So I can only imagine if we have a meeting room, I don't know, with 25 people or 30 people, which was, let's say, the typical number of people that will come in this critical meeting, likely would, would seem like you can't have a discussion like that. But this democracy that the screen brings that everybody is occupying one piece and you can have as many as you want doesn't uh, change the experience, I think helped a lot, frankly. And uh, you were the project manager, right? I was the project manager. Clearly, it's not something that you can replicate. Neither in Pfizer cannot become the project manager of uh, the next project. But I, I think the idea of for something like this to happen, you need the ultimate decision maker to be really with his fingers dirty. And, uh, and running the show is the only way to do it. Uh, now, clearly in Pfizer, we're not planning to have one project like that. We plan to have multiple projects like that. And clearly, I'm not going to be the project manager of those. We will have project managers to run them. Uh, but that one uh, was critical that I will do that. And I was 
just going over all of the steps that you took to be able to do this. And it felt like, and I'm sure I'm missing a bunch, but I felt like I counted seven areas where you broke the typical process for drug discovery and, and the distribution. You teamed up with BioNTech. You didn't have an agreement with them until the end of the year, basically. This was a company that had never, no mRNA vaccine had ever been approved for clinical use. You started work before you had the contract. You didn't take any government funds for this. You skipped some steps to get these into humans. You combined phase two and three, and you built the manufacturing at the same time. And you were doing that for a vaccine technology you would never actually use before. That's a number of really unusual or risky moves to make towards something that was so necessary. As you look back now at all of the changes you had to make to get the vaccine out, is there anything that you would say, we will never go back and do that again? You know, our processes are now going to be different, or how we do drug discovery, or how we do partnerships, or manufacturing has changed because of what we've learned in this last year? Yes. Uh, this is a very big part of uh, my, my process right now and my thinking, and not, not right now, from, from the earlier days. And when people are asking me, tell me, what is the biggest opportunity for Pfizer now that you are so successful? And some people, for example, will offer oh, the mRNA technology. That's what remains at Pfizer as a, as a great opportunity. I would say, no, no, no. The biggest, biggest opportunity it is that we run a project with a smaller part of this corporation and the whole organization, almost 80,000 people, watch that and they want to repeat it. They all want to have their own COVID in oncology, their own COVID in immunology, in rare diseases. And they want to repeat this miracle or to make the impossible possible. And this is the attitude that we have uh, transferred to the people that I think is the biggest opportunity for us right now, which means that they will have to do things very differently. Because if we were able to, to make with COVID, which of course was a serious reason to do it, why not with the other diseases that are devastated? So we need to change the way that we were. And um, I hope that we will find ways to have multiple successes like that. Is there anything in particular you would point to that you would say, we used to do that we're not going to do again because of what we've learned for developing this? Many times in a development program that uh, you, you study the medicine or the vaccine, let's say for a year and a half, the study will take five because there is a lot of time to recruit patients and there is a lot of time to interact with regulators and there is a lot of time to, to design things and uh, move from one study to another. So I think things that we will uh, clearly not do again, it is we will not accept the status quo in terms of how much waste or white space between the clinically necessary work and the administrative work that you can go to the next step needs to take. And uh, that we are going to, to, we are breaking it into minutes right now. How many minutes will take to do this and that? And we are going to eliminate all the waste of that. That's incredible. What a big change. You mentioned mRNA and the, and the differences that'll bring. When you look at all of the diseases and viruses and anything that, 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 were, that Pfizer can train its attention to, what's the next place that you would tell people, this is where we're going to start putting the mRNA technology. This is where we think some of the breakthroughs are going to happen. I think the first things that we are going to see, it is more vaccines, more vaccines for uh, mm -hmm. diseases that either we do not have right now, uh, vaccines, or we have vaccines, but we are not very happy, very satisfied. 
either because they don't have high efficacy or the flu or other diseases that they have safety problems or whatever. So I think that's something that I'm sure they, they are starting working right now. I know that we are. Uh, but also, there is a ton of work that is happening uh, before the COVID uh, vaccine of mRNA implementation, or mRNA technology implementation in cancer vaccines. They are therapeutic vaccines. You don't get it just to avoid developing cancer, but you are getting it while you have the cancer so that your immune system can help you fight uh, your own cancers. So I think we will see a lot of investments and a lot of scientific focus in this area as well. And an area that hasn't been explored that much yet, we are very bullish that can give significant breakthroughs. It is genetically driven diseases, diseases that are transferred by by one to another because there is a, a mistake in one of the, of the messages that uh, your DNA is sending to your organization, and then you can possibly uh, switch that and change that mistake uh, with uh, a messenger RNA. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'll continue my conversation with Pfizer CEO Albert Borla. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. And we're back. Here's more of my conversation with Albert Borla. The Pfizer brand now means a whole lot to a lot of people who are so thankful to have the vaccine. <clears throat> but Pfizer produces a lot of products that don't have the Pfizer name on it. Are you thinking about changing that? But before we even get to your answer, I want to just point out that Harris and Axios just did a poll recently. And Pfizer is now one of the most recognized or most trusted brands in the world, and I think they said this was they've never seen a brand that has risen this high, this fast before. So creating this vaccine is, has had an impact on the brand, right? How, how do you use that to your advantage? It's a great responsibility to, to carry such a great reputation. And you know, when you are very, very high, there are two ways that you can go. You can go higher or down. And clearly we don't want to, to go down. So for me, that creates an even higher urgency to make sure that everything we do in this company builds upon our good reputation. This is our most valuable asset. I have seen in many occasions the success, instead of making people humble, they make them arrogant. And then uh, mm -hmm. uh, all they need is to make the first mistake until their reputation goes down. Uh, reputation usually comes uh, to you in drops. I know it came... Uh, very steeply in our case, because the impact was huge, but comes in drops, but you can lose it in buckets. All you need is one mistake. So great responsibility for me to make sure that none 
of the 80,000 people in this company will do the mistake. Adam Grant has a new book out that talks a lot about this idea of keeping the sort of beginner's mindset and the importance of it. How do you make sure that you stay humble? I would assume if you don't go into development the same way you did with this vaccine, where you had multiple candidates and you were willing to try new things, or do you think that you have systems in place that enable you to keep being sort of rigorous on asking these questions and taking risks? No, I'm confident that we have very rigorous systems to make sure that um, quality is always uh, adhered to, because the mistakes can come. I mean, what can happen to your reputation is either you do a mistake by bringing something that it is not up to the expectations of the people, but also if you stop bringing things, that will fail. So I'm very, very confident that we have the processes in place. So everything that we'll put out there will be of this high quality that gave us this reputation. And now, what I'm concerned is how we can make sure that uh, a lot of flares during that mm -hmm. uh, process in, in uh, Pfizer. And this is where it is not more that much a question of process, I believe, because we have it. It's a question of culture. Can you talk a little bit about your own career progress? You started off as a vet and came into Pfizer as part of the animal medicine health. Pr program, animal health program. It's an unusual path to become CEO of Pfizer that way. Can you just talk about a little bit about your path and then how that uh, has impacted how you think about either your work or how you've guided your career? Yes, I, I think, first of all, your early days and your uh, academic studies, usually they are stamping your personality. They are building your character. They are, these are the, the years that you develop values about life. So clearly that made me who I am. And then when I joined Pfizer, I joined in the animal health group, and um, I did two things which were not that common. One, it is that um, I worked in uh, many different places. So I relocated and lived with my family in eight different cities of five different countries. So that gave me a very good understanding of uh, how different cultures operate, that I found it useful. Once you do it eight times, you can do it 150 times. So you learn how to recognize the differences and respect different cultures. That helped me a lot in my career. I did a lot of different jobs. So I, I moved from department to department. That helped me a lot in my career. From my 28 years now at Pfizer approximately, I did uh, 17 in the animal health and 11 in the human health. So the first 17 were in the animal health. I found it also that very helpful because the animal health was a small division within Pfizer. It was uh, never the focus of the attention and never the receiver or a lot of resources. As a result, we learned over there, one, to navigate the Pfizer bureaucracy because we didn't have the power to instill things. And the second thing was that uh, we learned to be creative and to work with less resources. I remember when I moved from the animal health to the human health, I was surprised by two things. One, how many resources they had and how much they were brand focused rather than customer focused, which was the, the exact opposite of us in the animal health. This helped me because I came from a different division from one hand to see things differently, but also from the same company. So to know how to navigate the difficulties. So, and so uh, I think it helped me a lot, actually. So when you are giving advice to people on how they should navigate their own careers, is this what you recommend? Do you recommend trying a bunch of different 
jobs of being in smaller parts of big companies? Or is your path not the, the path that you tell people to go down? But the standard advice that um, I give it is that what worked for me doesn't mean that necessarily will work for, for others. But uh, clearly, I never planned my career, which is uh, not what we are teaching when we do career development right. here. Pfizer, HR will tell us, you need to plan, think what will be the next step. I never thought like that. Secondly, don't be very picky for the new jobs. I mean, if they offer you one, take the chance and the opportunities if you like. But if you feel that you don't like it, don't ever go there. Because I have seen multiple times uh, people that uh, they like things and they are not very successful. But I have never seen anyone successful that he or she doesn't like what they do. So it's very important part that you like what you do. And the third, if you want to be long-term, try to do a good job today. Try to focus on how can you maximize what you have right now, and people will see you, and people will select you, and you will progress. Can I go back to one, one part of that? You said that you have never planned your career, but that at Pfizer, you teach everyone that people should be thinking about where they're going to go next and mapping out their career. Why teach it if you don't think that is the, the right way for people to be, be, be running their own careers? That's a very good uh, idea that you're giving me now. Okay. <laughs> All right, let us know how it goes and if that works. We're going to a lot of questions about the vaccine itself and about what comes next. As you know, there are many people hesitant to get a vaccine because they say it's so new. Do we know the long-lasting effects of the vaccine? How is Pfizer measuring success now? We do not know right now how much will last. We do know that six months is having very strong efficacy. From the data that I see, I expect that um, eight to 12 months, somewhere like that, likely the data will tell us that we need a booster. But uh, those are data that they are, I've seen a lot of them, that's what I'm saying, but they are not confirmed yet. So something that we will see with certainty after summer. Uh, when it comes to, you know, uh, is this going to last for, for forever? Is there a long lasting opportunity for Pfizer financially, or is it a long lasting need for the world to vaccinate? I believe, yes, uh, looks like that will become like a flu. And I have a lot of reasons why I say that. But I, I believe that annual revaccinations like with flu will be the, the, the minimum that will be required. Got it. Is there something that you get the shot now and two years down the line, you discover that something uh, happened because you've gotten the flu now? We are having in our studies that we did with the 46,000 people, we are monitoring those people at, out for at least uh, two years. So that's a very intensive follow-up so that uh, we see if there is anything. It's extremely unlikely. Vaccines, they do not so far give side effects beyond the first month of their administration. It's very, very unlikely to have something like that. That being said, uh, we are monitoring to see uh, how those 46,000 people Will react. The other good thing that we have with this particular vaccine is that has been given in hundreds of millions of people uh, and in countries with electronic medical records. So we have now good confirmation that goes beyond statistical error that in the first few months it's absolutely safe. Okay, and I believe the next two milestones we're looking for for this particular vaccine, the efficacy uh, with pregnant women and then kids under 11, I think, are coming up next. Is that right? It is right. We are uh, having right now 5 to 11, but also we will go all the way down to six months. And we are we are moving slower over there, obviously, because we are way more careful. 
and we go with, uh, let's say, very small doses to make sure that uh, as we go up with the dose, we don't see, let's say, any, any side effects. So, so far, things look good, but we will wait to see it. That was Pfizer CEO Albert Borla. The idea that we can return to normal because of R&D and manufacturing inventions like what Pfizer went through is sort of mind-blowing. One thing that jumped out at me during what I thought was a really interesting and very authentic interview was when Albert talked about the need for him to get the entire company to believe that the first thing that he did when he decided that Pfizer was gonna take on this massive challenge was to get everyone's mind in the right place. And he said even he needed to believe that this was something they could do. And if they couldn't do it, who could? That idea of asking people to jump, of asking yourself to jump before you have all of the right information, that's something that I think many of us deal with at some point in our lives. I would love to hear your story of how you had to believe in something and move or believe in something and get others to do the same. So if you could share your story with me, I would love to see it. Write about it on LinkedIn. Use the hashtag, this is working. I'll be monitoring the comments. As always, to get more news and insights on our changing world, you can follow our main LinkedIn page, which you can find by searching for LinkedIn News. Please share this episode with a friend who is interested in how our COVID-19 vaccines came to be. You can get a link on your favorite podcast platform or share the newsletter that you'll find on my profile. Thanks. This is Working as a production of LinkedIn. The podcast was produced by Sarah Storm with help from Dave Pond and Michaela Greer. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original video and audio. Dave Pond is our technical director. I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Stay strong. See you soon.